Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. If you have inflammatory bowel disease or know someone who does, you'll undoubtedly have heard that stress often exacerbates the condition. Key findings in this recent study were that chronic stress actually leads to chronic intestinal inflammation. They found that chronically elevated levels of cortisol drive the actual creation of a new inflammatory subset of enteric glial cells. Because there are neurons in the gut, there are also going to be glial cells. Glial cells are the valet of the nerve cell, providing both nutrition and protection. And we're now learning having a fair amount of control over what the neurons do. In the case of chronic high levels of glucocorticoids, the enteric glia actually mutate and epigenetic changes occur to form a subset of glia that actively promote inflammation through monocytes and tumor necrosis factor production. Astonishingly, the glucocorticoids also actually delay maturation of the enteric neurons, leading to an arrested development situation in which acetylcholine is not produced. This leads to dysmotility and constipation. They verified the connection between the psychological state, intestinal inflammation, and poor motility in three different cohorts of inflammatory bowel disease patients. We'll go into a little more detail now about exactly what they found, but the thing that I have never heard before and which I found most astonishing was the developmental delay being created in the intestinal neurons. I had always thought of the intestinal neurons, the neurons that drive peristalsis, the wave of muscle contraction that moves uh, excretions through the intestine as a sort of automatic earthworm-like process influenced a little bit by the neurons of the spinal column that, that correspond to those nerves, but not really related to glucocorticoid production or serum factors at all. Well, my mistake, due to my reductionist medical education, I forgot that everything is connected. So first, let me tell you about the fact that this appears to be mediated by a type of cell called monocytes. Now, monocytes are a bit like a teenage macrophage. When I think about them, they're a type of white blood cell, but they aren't a lymphocyte, they aren't a plasma cell, they aren't yet a macrophage, but they're a teenage macrophage, rather like you have nymphal stages in some insects in entomology. They look like a miniature version of the adult, but they don't have all the capacities and capabilities of the adult. In the case of monocytes, they are able to wander around the bloodstream and swallow bacteria, but unlike the mature form, dendritic cells or macrophages, they don't have the ability to digest what they eat and turn it into a fragment that can then be presented 
to the T cells or to cause the production of antibodies or the production of killer T cells. So they're an intermediate stage that still has some utility in fighting infection. There are lots of monocytes in the gut because ultimately we need lots of dendritic cells to engulf, package, and present all of the many antigens that we encounter in food. Using a mouse model of psychological stress, which basically just involved restraining the mouse and not letting it move around, they were able to show changes in the amounts of RNA being produced in the monocytes, suggesting changes in gene expression being triggered by the psychological stress. Certain types of immunity were downregulated, and certain pro-inflammatory genes that are associated with inflammatory bowel disease were actually increased. So the markers on the surface of the colon cells that would be the targets for an autoimmune attack actually amplified on the surface of those cells, kind of a kick-me signal, if you will. They also showed a great enrichment in pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-6, interleukin-6, and tumor necrosis alpha. They also varied the timing of the stressors, and what they found was that the pre-stressed animals had a much bigger flare of inflammatory bowel disease when they were given a a, uh, trigger than those who were given the trigger first and then placed under stress. This implies a kind of priming effect for chronic stress that sets you up for autoimmune reactions. The researchers then decided to test this finding by taking away the ability to respond to stress with the glucocorticoids in a series of experiments. In one, they gave a drug that blocked the release of cortisone by blocking its releasing factor from the hypothalamus, and this indeed rendered the mice resistant to the impact of stress on colitis. They also tried adrenalectomy and blocking glucocorticoid receptors using mefepristone. Yes, you heard me right. Mefepristone, the drug that is used in chemical abortions, is also an excellent blocker, not just of progesterone, but also of cortisone on its receptor. In other words, it might prove to be an excellent agent for the management of chronic stress, something I find highly ironic given the current pharmaceutical brouhaha around this agent. They also tried giving synthetic Uh, agonists, synthetic steroids, at doses that were similar to what you would see after their stress model of restraint. And again, they duplicated the inflammation. So pretty thoroughly demonstrating that the mucosal injury, uh, the reduced colon length, the other damages that we see in inflammatory bowel disease are caused by chronic steroids. Why they had to prove this and then prove it again and then prove it yet again was because we use chronic steroids to treat inflammatory bowel disease, and they seem to work quite well. And as is typical, this proves the point that hormones are not pharmaceuticals. 
hormones are more like musical notes. And when they're given in a sharp blast that then falls off quickly, it reads very differently to the ear or the receptor than if it's a chronic drone of the same thing with no modulation whatsoever. The beat is where the signaling occurs, not in the drug or the hormone itself, but how it's used. This is a fundamental principle of human and mammalian physiology that gets missed right and left by the medical establishment. But the real mystery lay in the changes of gut motility that are observed in inflammatory bowel disease. And a series of esoteric experiments ensued that ended up pointing to the enteric nervous system's subset of cells called glial cells. When they did their analyses of the mRNA production sets in various glial cells under various clinical situations, they discovered that there were essentially four distinct patterns of mRNA transcription. Let's call that four distinctive personalities that the glial cells consistently showed in response to environmental change. One subset was only present under stressful conditions, so they honed in at this one, and they called this subset enteric glia associated with psychological conditions EGAPs. When you look at the expression profile of EGAPs, you find the induction of pro-inflammatory and pro-apoptotic pathways. Apoptosis means programmed cell death. You also find that adhesion and cellular interactions pathways are downregulated, making for automatically a leaky gut, but also interfering with coordination of normal function. Going back to their earlier studies, they gave chronic dexamethasone treatment, and they showed that this was sufficient all by itself to create these EGAPS cells in the enteric gut. In fact, the transcriptional profile from dexamethasone looked very much like that seen in the stressed mice. But how do you get from here to intestinal inflammation? How to investigate this question? Well, the knockout mouse to the rescue. Researchers used transgenic mice who make a depleted glial cell lacking something called SOX10 expressing cells. We aren't even going to try to pronounce that. Uh, and these glia-depleted mice were resistant to the same effect of psychological stress on bowel inflammation observed in the previous groups. They were also resistant to the chronic dexamethasone, which was the other model being used to establish this concept, you'll recall. Ablating cells in the peripheral nervous system uh, reduced the glial cell numbers and prevented stress-induced colitis exacerbation. Specifically, glial ablation, knocking out those support in cells, actually blocked the accumulation of the colonic monocytes, the cells that we associate with the inflammation of colitis. It's as if the enteric nervous system, viewing the corticosteroids as a signal of danger, heightens the inflammatory response in anticipation of having to fight some kind of war, and in doing so, damages colonic function. 
But one of the types of colonic function that's the most interesting is motility. And consistently, the animals that were subjected to these various things experienced severe decreases in motility. Slow motility may not always be perceived by the individual as constipation, but it always has significant toxic effects on the system because of the prolonged presence of waste products being recirculated into the general circulation. Motility in the intestine is driven by nerves directing the muscles to contract. To do this, the nerves excrete neurotransmitters, primarily acetylcholine and nitric oxide. In the case of inflammatory bowels, if you look for those mature neurons that produce acetylcholine and nitric oxide, you will find that the populations are quite depleted. These nerve cells are simply not maturing properly, and you find a whole bunch of cells in an arrested state of development where they are not capable of stimulating peristalsis. Thus, chronic stress stimulates a subset of the immune system called monocytes to transform into inflammatory mediator makers. These inflammatory mediators then transform the glial cells, the protectors of the neurons in the gut, into a subtype seen only in inflammation, which interferes with normal maturation of the neurons. These Peter Pan neurons do not contribute to peristalsis, do not produce adequate levels of acetylcholine or nitric oxide, and effectively paralyze gut transit, looping back to create more inflammation and creating more of the same. Failure to launch in the case of the neurons that stimulate gut function themselves. In order to become or remain healthy, we all of us have to take some time every day and unplug from the internet, the podcast, the hyperstimulation of the society that's been built by us and for us by machines we invented, step back and be in the now. We need to place ourselves in a psychological attitude of safety and gratitude and awareness of the moment. Careful observation of nature is an excellent way to do that, along with meditation, tai chi, qigong, breathing exercises, heart math, brainwave biofeedback, and a host of other devices. But the point is, you really need to do this. The investment is really worth it in your long-term health, in reducing your risk of cancer. We now understand that the more time you spend in rest and digest, mend and befriend, the more DNA repair you get, the more telomere lengthening you get, the better your ability to identify and destroy precancerous tissue, the longer your lifespan and your brain span, the better your sleep, the lower your weight, the more regular your bowel movements, and the way you heal from wounds and recover from injuries. There is literally nothing that stress does not make worse when it becomes chronic. 
And yes, I know you're strong. You can do this. You've had to do it before. You just keep on keeping on. Yeah, well, you can do that, but it's not a very smart choice. I'm going to give you a little bit of simple medical advice. I call it food zen. If you want to improve your digestion, including the amount of nutrients you absorb, you'll eat more slowly and with more attention. I had an exercise back 10 or 15 years ago at the uh, annual Institute for Functional Medicine conference where they handed out a raisin, a single raisin. And you basically had a seduction foreplay session with the raisin. First, you smelled it. You looked at it carefully using a magnifying glass. You looked at the beautiful texture and color, the gleam and the shining and the ridges and the whorls and the complex structure. You were advised to think about the gleaming grape that there has once been, frosted with morning dew in the sun, and think about all of the hours of sunlight and warmth that went into its desiccation into this small, highly concentrated package of sugar. You were then allowed to take it and rub it along your lips, just lightly, just tickling your lips. Your lips have a lot of sensation, and this can actually be a very fascinating exercise. Then you were to just place the tip of your tongue on it and see what you tasted, not biting into it yet. Then a tiny little nibble with your teeth, holding that in your mouth, pushing it up against the roof of your mouth and twirling it back and forth. Now, by then, I at least was having to swallow saliva and not swallow the little fragment of grape, which was also the instruction. You're not to eat it yet. Then you place it under your tongue, move that around, feel the roughness of the texture, put it back between your teeth, and then nibble on it, nibble, 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 and see what you taste. Well, by then you'd had another couple of swallows of saliva, and then you were finally allowed to put the raisin in your mouth and chew it and swallow it. But you had to chew it 20 times before you could swallow. Overall, the exercise took about two minutes. And I'm not saying you have to do this every time you eat, but if you can take 30 seconds before you begin eating to look at, smell, Think about the time and energy, the workers, the sunlight that went into the production of this food. Think about where it came from, how it came to be here on your plate. Appreciate all of that. And then make that first bite long and sensual. Your brain will have prepared the rest of your intestinal tract admirably to receive this wonderful gift of food that you're putting in your mouth. Not only will you enjoy it more, but you will derive more benefit from it. Your digestive processes will improve. Your eliminations will become more regular. Your microbiome will thrive. And you'll make yourself healthier with just the simple action of slowing down and appreciation. So I challenge you, eat one meal this week that way. Turn off the TV. It's okay to listen to music. Maybe have a conversation. But if you do have a conversation, you still have to chew 20 times before you swallow. So it's one of those slow conversations where you get to think about your answer before you give it. And those are the best kind. Mosquitoes. It's coming up on the season. I'm sure you've gotten your mosquito dunks and have turned over all of the standing water you could find. If you haven't, well, go get out there and do that because they're 
coming, and they are hungry. Or more accurately, the female is hungry for protein and compounds that she can only obtain from blood, mammal blood. It's always a question what brings mosquitoes to people, and researchers, or Virginia Tech, did a study looking at this exact issue and what draws mosquitoes to us. And they found, surprisingly, that one of the biggest culprits is actually soap. See, mosquitoes also drink plant sap, and so they're attracted to flowers. In fact, some flowers are pollinated by mosquitoes, which I did not know. The folks at Virginia Tech analyzed soap, specifically the four most popular soaps used in the United States. Sorry, Dr. Bronners, you weren't on the list. They had volunteers wash their hands with one of four soaps and then not rinse one arm and thoroughly rinse the other. And during an hour, they were placed in a nylon tent with mosquitoes to see whether they would get bitten more on one side than another. I can imagine what the human subjects committee uh, disclosure paperwork looked like for the uh, signature of the experimental subjects. Anyway, the soaps were Dial, Dove, Simple Truth, and Native. What they found was interesting. The first three definitely increased the desirability of the arm to be bitten, where the last one, native, did not. A mass spectroscopy analysis allowed the researchers to determine what was being emitted by the soap. And in the case of the difference between the rinsed arm and the unrinsed arm was largely dominated by a class called terpenes, which are uniquely found in plants. All of the disease-carrying mosquitoes that were tested had the same preferences for terpenes, and it was reproducible uh, against all four volunteers and all four soaps, so fairly good result. Native was the only soap that seemed to act as a repulsive. In analyzing what the difference was, researchers looked for the chemical that was found in high levels in the brand of soap called Native. The answer, coconut oil. Lemonine, citronella, go take the back seat. Coconut oil is scientifically shown to be somewhat repulsive to mosquitoes, and all of these other soaps, somewhat attractive. I'm going with unscented, with a spray of coconut oil, and mm, realistically, probably a little DEET as well, or permethrin sprayed on my clothing. You can find more about spraying permethrin and pyrethrins on your clothing in a previous program, which aired two weeks ago. The following commentary is a soliloquy on human identity, socialization, and the emergence of sexuality in various cultural contexts. I hope you will receive it as concerned, compassionate, and humane, as I intend it to be. I think I'll start out talking about my best friend in high school. Their name was Patrick. Patrick was what was classified back in the early 1970s as a gay male who was a transvestite. Patrick was attracted to men, but did not really think of himself 
as what he called a macho. I think if he'd had the vocabulary, he probably would have framed himself as a trans woman. So I'm going to use there for the rest of this discussion. There's been an enormous transition in our society, not just with respect to acknowledging and allowing homosexuality, but to questioning the whole concept of gender as a birthright. When I think about it, I go to my liberal arts education, and I think about other societies that framed sexuality differently. Let's start with what we know about ancient Greece. They have, of course, an extensive literature that we can still read, but I suspect there are many other civilizations with very different attitudes about gender and sexuality. In the case of the Greeks, men were considered, or I should say those with male genitalia, to be completely correct, were considered to go through a pre-sexual stage, and then a homosexual stage, which was viewed as entirely healthy and natural. And then later on, after marriage, a heterosexual stage where procreation was encouraged. There is debate on the subject of whether homosexuality in terms of attraction and normalization of love wasn't in fact a male homosexual pattern. There are plenty of other examples from pre-contraceptive cultures of women being encouraged to be homosexual until marriage. Uh, the British public school system and the seraglio come to mind. In patriarchal societies, paternity needs to be established, and therefore the sequestration of women and the valuing of virginity are emergent phenomenon of the social hierarchy. That's just how it is in humans. It's very difficult for people who grew up in any time, really, before the 90s to entirely get their heads around this. But my best friends have always been men. And the ones that I felt the closest to were the ones with whom there wasn't any sexual tension. That is to say, men who were attracted to men. Yeah, I lost Patrick during AIDS. And I lost my best friend, Jeff, also a gay man, to cancer. I thought I would lose his partner to AIDS, but the drugs came along. So that person, who is still alive, so I won't name him on a national radio podcast, is still alive. You can never predict where things are going to go. But that's not what I want to talk about. I guess what I really want to talk about is compassion and understanding. I think these are really good social values to promote. I wasn't alive during the McCarthy years, but for anyone who wants to understand the toxic effects of social polarization, go take a look at the Hollywood blacklist. Go take a look at Joseph McCarthy, who could represent one of the original playbooks for how to weaponize hatred and discrimination in order to gain political power. In a country that cherishes freedom, going after people because their political ideas don't match yours is completely antithetical to the idea of free speech, to the idea of 
freedom of of action, freedom to live where you want, freedom to love who you want. These are all basic values that are sort of implied, if not literally embedded, in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty is the second thing there. So we run into, however, neurocognitive issues. And that's really where the rest of this commentary is going. People are not invulnerable to social pressure. I think that's obvious. The internet and social media has aggravated this natural tendency to go along to get along. And the polarization that's sort of intrinsically embedded in the internet, because it's driven by an algorithm that's an AI that only wants to sell your eyeball time, is driving us further and further apart. Let's try to take a step back and take a little dispassionate look at the issue. The following was prompted by an excellent article in the April 4th issue of The Economist. The article is basically an assessment of the state of evidence in favor of gender transitions in adolescence. It covers both surgical and hormonal treatment and reviews the medical literature. As I said, social pressure is a powerful force. In the 1950s and 1960s, women underwent injection of industrial silicon into their chest wall to expand their breasts. They did so because of social pressure. Big busted women were the ones who got the good husbands. To put it in no uncertain terms, your choices were be to be a minion or a trophy wife. There was no upward arc for career to the top for women in that era. Very few women made it, and most of them had a lot of help from being well-off and having family support. In subsequent decades, there was lots of buyer's remorse. The implants eventually polymerized and turned into rigid, rock-like substances, still round and buoyant in uh, appearance, but extremely painful. Imagine trying to sleep with two rocks strapped to your chest, as well as not particularly sexual anymore. Later on, this a sanitized version of this same industrial silicon was encased in polymer sacs, and silicon breast implants were all the rage. But the polymer sacs leaked, and research came out in the early 90s, demonstrating that the leakage of this human silicon into the surrounding tissues led to activation of the immune system in some women and the emergence of an autoimmune disease with scleroderma-like features. Subsequently, these implants were pulled, and a new implant emerged, saline implants, which are still used to this day. People get tattoos and piercings and breast implants and butt implants and penile implants, and these are all legitimate things for an adult to decide to do to their body. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You own your body. But the question about the buyer's remorse really troubles me, because unfortunately, with gender transition, there is kind of a do-by date, a deadline. It's called puberty. Puberty occurs between the ages of 8 and 16, depending on a wide variety of factors. Usually within these times, 
the pituitary gland begins producing large quantities of two hormones, follicle-stimulating hormones and luteinizing hormones. This occurs as a response to the hypothalamus deciding that, bing, the alarm has gone off, and its production of gonadotropin-releasing formula, which is simply how hormones work in general. The hypothalamus decides to release it, sends a little message to the pituitary. The pituitary sends a directed hormone to a target organ, and the target organ responds. In this case, if you're endowed with ovaries, it responds by producing massive quantities of estrogen. If you are endowed with testicles, it's massive amounts of testosterone. Other hormones are also produced in higher quantities, but I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds. These hormones cause the emergence of so-called secondary sexual characteristics. These include the distribution and formation of pubic hair, axillary hair, the emergence of breasts, the enlargement of the testicles, and the enlargement of the penis. All of the things we're familiar with that differentiate XX and XY. As Simone de Beauvoir said, biology is destiny. And with respect to the body, it pretty much is. Absent certain uh, genetic mutations, if you're an XX, you're going in one direction, and if you're an XY, you're going in another. While all these physical changes are happening in the body, there are also changes happening in the brain. These are far more mysterious and probably begin several years before puberty. But I'm going to submit a rather radical proposition here, which is that gender identity really does not exist in early childhood as an emergent phenomenon of the brain, but instead is pretty much all social contagion. So I'm going to start with my own personal testimony. And before I start, I need to remind you or say that I have really been blessed with a truly exceptional memory. And one of the things that I remember is that I remember well and earlier, quite a lot from about the age of three. And I've been able to verify this from family photos. I remember a few things, I think, that actually happened from when I was very young, but they're mostly things that had huge emotional content. But my point is, I remember seriously wanting to know what I was and seeking out cues from my environment and from uh, how people treated me. So my story was that I was a little girl born in the mid-20th century. I was a dress-up doll. I had lace panties. Actually, they held up my diapers, but they had little lace bits uh, sewn onto the back. Cloth diapers then, folks. So you needed a rubber pant. I had petticoats. I had all sorts of female signals. I had dolls before I could walk. The boy across the street had trucks by the time he could walk. And so many signals that I recall personally. Later on, when I studied psychology, one of the great controversies at the time was how much of this is shaping. And many, many studies were done that established fairly definitively that parents treat boys and girls differently. And if you, one study I recall in particular, if you t 
tell the caregivers that this is a boy, they will treat that child differently than if you tell them that it is a girl. So there's a lot of subconscious stuff going on in society and a lot of overt stuff going on in psychology that signals gender and gives children who are looking for answers. They're looking for rules. They're looking for defined things. Now, I also remember going through a period where I wanted to be a boy, and I asked to be called Danny, and I did that because I wanted to wear different clothes, and I wanted to have more latitude in what I was allowed to do, and I wanted to run around and be crazy, and the boys got to do that, and the girls were shushed. And I think I could have been possibly four and a half. It was going on before I went to kindergarten. And in kindergarten, I was schooled in a lot of things, including my gender role. So what happens when you take all of that hyper-signaling away, when it becomes just a little bit retro, a little bit backward to force your child into a certain setting? My beloved niece made a point of only dressing her toddler, a female, in boys' clothes. And her reasoning for that was that the boys' clothes were more durable and resisted stains better and went through more washings, which, given that she was mainly dressing the children in hand-me-downs from her friendship group, made a lot of sense. But at the same time, I also think that nothing that you do with a young child goes unobserved. I'm not trying to blame anybody. I'm saying that as society evolves, people evolve. And the people we create, goodness knows, the people that we've created in the age of the internet and the age of the smartphone are wired differently than the people that were created when you had to learn to read by a book, something on paper that didn't talk to you. Wow, of course their brains are different. So here we are, a bunch of people, a whole society trying to struggle with this. And so I want to go back to that breast implant example and revisit the issue of buyer's remorse in the light of this recent Economist article, which I really urge you to read. I think it's extremely well done and sane. And, you know, on this particular topic, this is an emotional topic. Sanity and intellectual analysis is pretty thin on the ground. And I don't see this article as a polemic, but it does point out certain weaknesses in the data uh, that we're basing a lot of, you know, really fundamental changes to the bodies of children and young people that are irreversible. Would you let your three-year-old get a tattoo? Well, I hope not, because they will curse you when they're 15 and they still have that tattoo. Preferences change and are highly fluid in childhood. That's a good thing. But locking those preferences in, well, let's think about a little bit. Let's think about that a little bit. So let's take a look at buyer's remorse. First of all, the term itself comes from purchasing something that you later regret purchasing. So let's talk a little bit about marketing. Marketing 101 says one of the ways to stimulate a purchase is to create a deadline for that purchase. Last chance, only three left in stock, one time 50% discount expires tonight at midnight. You've all seen versions of this, and it's a very effective psychological pressure tactic. But we actually don't have to worry about creating one when the case of gender transition, because 
puberty is a huge gender transition. Suicide rates in the teens are very high, regardless of your gender identification. Unhappiness rates, depression, and anxiety are all epidemic for one reason, because you're going through this period of rapid transition. You don't know who you are, and you don't know what your body is going to do to you tomorrow. Secondly, those hormones have a profound effect on the brain, dysregulating the ordinary stability that the neurotransmitters that are associated with depression and anxiety depend on. The stereotype that teenagers are impulsive has been backed up by irrefutable functional MRI evidence that shows that the areas of the brain that model consequence and cause you to think twice about a decision are not fully developed, particularly the part that models the future and thinks about what might happen if. People's brains really aren't fully developed in terms of their ability to model and abstract in situations until their mid-20s. This is established scientific fact. This is not up for debate. So what happens when we make a decision earlier? Because hey, by now or you've lost your window of opportunity. And puberty, yeah, that's going to come along when it's going to come along. If you let that ball get rolling, there'll be physical changes that will not be erasable. There's also the fact that we still live in a patriarchal society. The internet has created a hypersexualized one compared to what I was experiencing in my teens, which was pretty damn hypersexualized uh, as it is. So wanting to escape your gender role, which is to be a sexual object, which is to be judged on the basis of an unattainable, at least without extensive surgery and extensive money, standard of beauty, well, that doesn't sound like such a bad idea, does it? Get out from under it. And it's not just objectification as a sexual object. We live in a rape culture. And women and children are frequently raped or sexually abused. If you come to frame, as an adolescent would, a sort of direct connection between having a vagina and being a victim, then it's pretty easy to see why getting rid of that vagina and turning it in for a penis starts to look like a good deal. And we're not saying this is a conscious thought, but I am saying that we make a lot of emotional decisions uh, all the time. And this is an emotional decision, unfortunately, that can't be reversed. And there is very poor data on buyer's remorse when it comes to transition surgery. And the data supporting it, as we'll go into in a moment, is remarkable for two things that would ordinarily cause you not to even publish a study, which is to say large dropout rates and the absence of a control group. Another problem with this data is, well, when you cite research that's done more than five years ago, you're citing research that no longer applies to the current cohort getting this therapy. And that's because 10 years ago, the sex ratio of those seeking gender reassignment was two to one male to female. Over the course of the last five years, that number has drastically shifted, such that the ratio of females to male is around five to one. 
Now, I accept the born with this way idea as a concept, but I don't think we suddenly started birthing people 15 years ago differently and such that this male to female ratio has shifted so drastically. I think it has a lot to do with social permission and social contagion. And I'm not sure those are good reasons to eliminate your secondary sexual characteristics at the age of, let's say, 17. I also really think that someone needs to do a study looking at rape and childhood sexual abuse of girls and see whether or not there isn't a correlation between that and a decision to seek gender reassignment, because that's a reaction to an external event. And yeah, I get it. You don't want to be raped again. But this is not the answer. I'd love to be proved wrong that that isn't a factor in the decision to seek gender transition. But I'm also aware that less than 50% of rapes, way less, get reported. So how much background is there? And shouldn't someone check that out? I also want to point out that saying that giving puberty blockers reduces depression makes complete sense. I bet you if I took a very strong, macho, heterosexual, depressed, male teenager and gave him hormone blockers, I might actually improve his mood. That, too, is something that needs to be studied, because maybe the use of puberty blockers reduces depression across the board, regardless of gender identification. And that's not been looked at. Instead, it's been used as surrogate evidence that we need to do puberty delay or, or puberty blockers because these children are depressed and suicidal. But like I said, teenagers are depressed and suicidal. Are we sure that we're looking at cause and effect in all cases? Well, I'm not. Not unless there's a control group, and that's one of the big issues here. The core literature in support of gender transition emerges from work done in the Netherlands in the 1980s and the 1990s. This protocol is based on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgery. We block the puberty blockers from stimulating the gonads, we give the hormones of the opposite sex, and we perform the surgeries, first usually top surgery, removing the breasts in a female to male transition, or breast augmentation surgery in the opposite direction. Two papers published by Anne-Lou de Vries in 2011 and 2014 reported on experiences of some of the first patients to undergo this protocol and concluded that the symptoms of depression decreased among patients taking puberty blockers and that gender dysphoria resolved and psychological functioning steadily improved after cross-sex hormones and surgery. But an age-matched cohort of young people who were also depressed and had similar scores on Beck Depression Inventory or whatever they used were not looked at. So, yes, we know that depression occurs in teenagers. We know it spontaneously remits in many. And can we really say that the gonadotropin blocking hormones and the opposite sex hormones were curative? Or was time the great cure there? Well, it could go either way, couldn't it? And I have to say, I think the effect on girls is more damaging because puberty is a time of the deposition of bone 
if you give testosterone to a female, they'll get more muscular, their voice box will change, and they'll keep that low voice whether they stop the hormones or not. The bone structure of the face will change, the jaw will be thicker and wider, also irreversible and hard to reverse surgically. And facial hair will, of course, be different. You'll end up having to wax your mustache for the rest of your life. Another problem with the studies is duration. Cross-sex hormones are a lifelong treatment, yet the follow-up has been short, ranging from one to six years. And most studies followed only a single cohort of patients who were given the drugs instead of comparing them with a control group. Maybe antidepressants uh, or counseling would have helped with that depression as well. The problem, again, is buyer's remorse. These are irreversible changes, as I said, particularly in women. Let's move to another marketing technique, peer pressure. And let's move to the marketing technique of get to yes. It's well known that if you can get a person to say yes to one thing, they're statistically more likely to say yes to the next thing that comes out of your mouth. And once a person is in a lane moving in a direction, particularly when they're young and insecure and haven't fully formed their brain, resisting the crowd is very difficult. But where it has been reported, there is a pretty substantial dropout rate. And one study in particular struck me as being very persuasive that buyer's remorse might be rather more common than generally suggested. There were three papers published in 2021 and 22, which looked at patients in both the British and in the American Armed Forces. One of the ways to get your sex transition paid for is to join the Army, which has agreed to do that for people with gender dysphoria. Your tax dollars at work, I'm not going to argue about whether that's a good reason to join the Army, but, you know, they were having trouble with recruitment, and that certainly worked. But those studies have shown that between 10% and 30% of the people in the military dropped out within a few years. Now, part of that may be peer pressure, and part of that may be the maturation of the frontal and prefrontal cortex, allowing consequences to be modeled. And the fact that even 10%, let's assume that the low number is the correct one, change their mind, means that our screening processes need to be looked at carefully. The original Dutch studies that I mentioned before followed the same group of patients throughout their treatment, which is good. But the original sample size in the DeVries studies was very small. The 2011 paper only looked at 70 patients. 70 patients, remember that number, because the outcome was only known for 32 of them. And the final assessment of outcome occurred about 18 months after surgery. That means there's really not enough time for reality to set in and for people to change their minds. Another problem with the study is that the questionnaire changed. The finding that gender dysphoria improved was probably an artifact of how the participants were assessed. Before treatment, for example, female patients were asked to agree or disagree with statements like, every time someone treats me like a girl, I feel hurt. This was supposed to establish their desire to be seen as male. Personally, it could also have been because people called them ugly. After blockers, hormones, and surgery, the same individuals were asked questions on, uh, on a different scale. 
originally developed for those born male. So they didn't even use the same questionnaire. It offered statements like, every time someone treats me like a boy, I feel hurt. Naturally, people who preferred to be seen as male disagreed with that. So if that's our indication of improvement, yeah, it's a little bit soft as a general yardstick. And another problem was the study actually cherry-picked their patients. That's 70. Well, the cohort was originally 111, but the researchers excluded those whose treatment with the puberty blockers didn't progress well. And, of course, of the remaining 70, others were admitted because they didn't finish the questionnaire or refused to do the questionnaire or dropped out or, in one case, died of complications from genital surgery. So, you know, if you're playing with your denominator like that, you can game the data any way you want. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about gaming the data by throwing out patients who don't behave according to your hypothesis. Now, there was a rebuttal, and Dr. DeVries is still alive, and argued against all of these points. But I still think we need to think twice based on the fact that this is what gets cited as the important data. Another problem is the magnitude of the benefit may not justify what's being done as a teenager. One study published this last January in New England Journal of Medicine looked at teenagers after two years of cross-sex hormone treatment. And yes, there were improvements in mental health, but they were in the single digits. So if you go from 18 to 24, that would be considered an improvement. But on a scale of 1 to 100, that's not a big improvement. Another problem with that particular study was that uh, it lacked a control group, and two of the 315 patients in in the study committed suicide, which doesn't exactly look like a successful treatment. One thing in favor of the Dutch protocol was that they were very conservative. Patients had to have suffered from gender dysphoria from before puberty. Let me underline that, from before puberty. And many of today's patients began suffering dysphoria as teenagers. The Dutch protocol excluded anyone with mental health problems from receiving treatment, but 70% of the current people seeking treatment suffer from mental health problems, according to three recent papers. So in reality, in the United States today, people with mental health issues, that's a reason to proceed with transitions rather than a reason to stop them. In the old days, and I'm talking about 15 years ago, if you wanted a transition, you were required to live as a female for two years, and undergo extensive psychological vetting before proceeding to any kind of body modification. That's gone out the window. And I'm not sure if it isn't just that puberty deadline that's causing us to move too quickly and not do adequate screening. And there are individual anecdotal reports of people being started on gender transition hormones Uh, after one 15-minute appointment, and even some remote appointments have been considered enough to justify uh, initiation of treatment. Maybe we need to look at that bar and think carefully about that first thing in the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. And I also want to throw out one final idea, going back to Patrick. Was Patrick trans? Yes, I think so. I, I sincerely do. Are all gay men 
trans women? Well, clearly not. And of the trans women, some are attracted to having sex with men and some are attracted to having sex with women. So that just throws another complication into the understanding of this complex socio-neurological hormonal problem. And if we go with first do no harm, I guess at this point, I'm going to make the argument that we need a protocol for thorough evaluation and counseling and a required six to 12-month cooling off period for those therapies to take effect, including perhaps antidepressants, before we move forward with trying to fix what may be a mental health issue with a surgical modification. Is transitioning the new conversion therapy for gay children? We certainly don't want it to become that. In my entire career, I cannot think of a time when the concept of surrogate decision-making for a minor has been more volatile, more dangerous, and more morally ambiguous. All I can say is, let's think twice and be careful. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at Ask Dr. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.